You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, The Extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no-da on the internet. I, I sent you some articles about drinking, how the face of the dying alcoholic has changed. Would you mind sharing a bit about that? What do we think about? We think about a alcoholic who drinks himself to death. You think of that white-fisted Irishman slumped over the bar, right? It's 10 a.m. I think of... Um, drinking the, the cheapest beer there is. A hobo in a suit. I literally think back to like 1930s television where it's like the guy who is like holding the paper bag with the wine bottle. Well, it is an, it is coming on in masses, and we're seeing people in their 20s and 30s. Uh, NPR did an article about, her name is Jessica Duenes, and she lived what she referred to as like two lives. And she was an immigrant. She went to college, and she became Kentucky's Teacher of the Year in 2019. And she was in her early 30s. So she was this teacher, um, super teacher in Kentucky during day, and at night she was drinking hard alcohol every night. So she got what's called, and I've never even heard of this before, I read this, is alcoholic hepatitis. Have you heard of that? Uh, I've briefly heard of it. Could you explain it? Well, it's inflammation of your liver from you know, putting bad things in your liver. Liver cleans all this crap that goes through your body. It leads to irreversible scarring. And if you don't stop drinking, it can even kill you. And it can kill you quickly. Now, this is a healthy, vibrant woman in the, you know, with a career. In her 30s. Sh- yeah. Awards. But these, this is not an isolated case. Um, she noticed that she couldn't keep any food down. She just couldn't eat anymore. And that's very common with alcoholics. Alcoholics, I know, they just can't eat anymore. They never eat. They eat once in a while. They drink all their meals. So it ruins their stomach. They start to get that um, toxic look, which is they get the yellow eyes. Have you seen that? Right. The yellow, yeah, the the white around the eye starts to turn. It turns yellow. They they literally become toxic. And it's just alcoholic liver disease. Now, in people's in their 20s and 30s, these are up over 30% right now. That is so much. That is wild. And it's, I can't stress enough, all the people I know who have started down this road, they're all well-educated. Like they are all millennials who got burned by student loans who are facing, you know, the inability to get a house. And they're well-educated people who aren't the bum on the street, you know, pouring a wine bottle or rot gut out. And where it's sneaky and, and kind of can sneak up on you is uh, most dangerous and overlooked is women young women because it can be part of their uh, personalities to go out drinks go to happy hour this and that (laughs) have you seen how many pro wine t-shirts and like uh, decorations there are at joanne's fabrics and kohl's and things like that absolutely it's wine o'clock somewhere it's more of a threat to women because their bodies are smaller they don't process alcohol the same so they can and they have a lot of pressures with the pandemic stuff going on work pressures and stuff so it's it's a release and it's a very unhealthy release in one of our earlier episodes i threatened that we were going to do 
a whole episode about medical insurance because I hate our listeners and I want to bore them to death. Um, <laughs> You've actually done that. Speaking of despair, that's how Joe's killed a few people. <laughs> I want to I want to demonstrate to our readers what it's like to want to drink until you pass out. When I made the claim earlier that uh, hospitals are profit centers and you know medical insurance is basically leading this charge, um, back in 2020, New York Times covered sort of the COVID insurance profits. Now, before this, um, before this COVID year, um, the Affordable Care Act had come out. And insurance profits were supposed to be capped. Like, like the idea is everybody buys insurance, it's required, and so the profits that these insurance companies make was supposed to be limited because they're, you know, it was supposed to be competitive market and it was supposed to lead people over to, you know, to, to buy health coverage. It was also supposed to make insurance companies more competitive with each other. Um, I'm not an, uh, an economist, so... We're just going to link you to articles if you want to follow up on that. We will have a, another episode about it. Um, but of course, what ended up happening is the opposite. Some of the largest companies like Anthem and Humana and United Health Group, they just reported second quarter earnings that are double what they had a year ago before COVID. <laughs> and before, and then it was like double that again before the Affordable Care Act. And you would um, think a pandemic would bankrupt these companies. All, right. co- all common sense would say that that would put you under, right? You would think so. Yeah. You would think with the pandemic, them shelling out money for PPE and ventilators and actually ponying up money uh, that, you know, insurance would go, you know, that they'd be losing. But that's not the case. They, they're just raking in money. Like, like I said, they doubled their profits. And um, according to this article with the requirements, the consumers should benefit from the excesses that they've made uh, in the form of rebates. In fact, that was part of their sort of um, uh, contractual windfall is that if they made too much profit off Americans who needed to be insured by law, then they would pay that back to the American system and to the people paying for insurance. And that hasn't happened yet. So this is like the second or third year New York Times has done an article about them specifically and how specifically these three major insurance groups haven't paid the American people back. And so it's just continuing. Um, so if anybody, when I said that the hospitals are profit systems and they, they that sounded like uh, kooky, um, you know, paranoia talk, I just want you to know that I didn't get these from Facebook. I got them from the New York Times. <laughs> This is your dad, and you're still half your dad. <laughs> I am, yeah. Uh, after this, I'm going to throw rune stones and read you your future. <laughs> that's so funny. That's so you. It's just that's just not you. When my brother and I talked to my father, and he, you know, the last couple of times he talked to us, he was very vague and nebulous about what was wrong with him. Um, he couldn't describe it. He just described general pain in his stomach, pain in his back, um, you know, getting weaker, like he had trouble walking. Um, the last time I saw him was for a concert, and we walked from the narrow side of Lloyd Center Mall from one door to the other, like crossing the mall, and he had to stop halfway and take a five-minute break. Like he, 
so like it's not the mall of america minnesota this is just a very small old school american mall right dozens of feet um so when i talked to my brother uh he had spoken to the medical examiner he was convinced it was the drinking specifically too um and when i looked at his charts i actually started to suspect that he was right uh, that my father had been processed, that he had seen all these doctors in the last couple of months. Um, and they had sort of glazed over the fact that he was losing nervous function and that he was like vomiting blood and that he was having trouble walking. It all looked like just strictly it looked like alcoholism. Um but he was scared and he did not know how to ask for advice. And like Malcolm Gladwell talks about, he had a tendency to accept what authority said. He didn't ask questions of authority. He just kind of let himself be processed. So he would he would go in for his clean bill of health, quote unquote, even though it was going to come out quite dirty. But when they said that they didn't find anything other than what was to be expected, which is declining health, he would just sort of accept that and move on. Do you think primary care doctors, and, and to no fault of them, do you think that they will see someone like your father or my grandfather and, and kind of give up? Would say, you? I would. I would say, hey, we've been over this a million times, right? Or, you know, and you can just see it. And it's like, I, I just can't, I can only give you so much of my heart and my brain. And I think that after we have done episodes on how we callous ourselves to preserve our personal narrative and how we um, have better mental health when we actually can distance ourselves from each other's problems. I think that there's only so much sympathy they have. And I think they do reserve it for people who it's going to affect their life if they have sympathy. Um, I think I honestly, I don't want this episode to sound like I'm blaming doctors. I blame a medical system that limits the time they have with their patients. And I blame an insurance system that puts a premium on speed of process. And a doctor's of, advice is only good if the person. Yeah. I actually respect the hell out of the, the doctors that saw him. And I respect what they wrote on his chart. And I think they actually did want to send him through a processing system that gave him a slightly better chance. I don't think it was the doctor's fault. Um, and that is just my opinion. I'm not an expert. Um, <laughs> I'm an expert Googler. That's what uh, the PI license has taught me. But I am not, you know, a doctor, obviously. It's sad because how low do you have to go? It's one thing to lose jobs, lose financial security, lose your family, your kids, your wife, your ex-wife. Um, but then when your physical health goes and you feel just absolutely horrible, like I'm sure he's had a war going in his body, and how you describe them, it doesn't sound very, you know, at what point is that not enough? Right. Um, you went to Reuters and got some numbers for us on how long you actually get to spend with a primary care doctor. Would you mind sharing that? 
Yeah, but first I want to say, I know when your ass goes to the doctors, you probably take two and a half hours of their day. You, you bring your chart in on a hand truck. <laughs> I, I am. You have notes <laughs> from last time. I am anxious enough to, to ask a bunch of questions. Uh, I come in. I cover diseases they've never heard of. Uh, and I tell them that I have some weird African strain uh, that I got from like a fungus. Uh, and then they eventually send me out. He's too smart for his own good. Yeah. <laughs> this Reuters Health thing is very, very interesting. I've never even had heard anything about this. So appointments in the world range from in Bangladesh to 48 seconds to 22 minutes in Sweden. 48 <laughs> seconds. That's a hand wave. That's not a doctor's <laughs> visit. Um. Yeah, 20 minutes in the United States, and, and we said it's, now it's it's going down. It's probably about 17 minutes. And, of course, they say the shorter the time you get to talk to the doctor, you know, to really find out to ask the right questions and to get enough information to make a diagnosis, right? You right. need to gather some data. Shorter Shorter visits do mean something. Shorter visits mean poor health for the community. Okay. And so the longer the doctors, usually the more healthier the community. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I'm looking at these colleges that the study comes from, and that is very respectable. Like I, Cambridge is smart people at Cambridge, right? Yeah. <laughs> and this is not a small, you know, Joe and I like to do these little small studies, with like five people that we talk to on the bus or <laughs> right. at the airport. This is 28.5 million appointments. So what happens is, Shorter visits mean more personalities, more diagnosis, more paperwork, more prescriptions written. It means more doctor burnout. Think about if you're in Bangladesh and you're doing 48 seconds. I mean, you have to run in their chart and the computer. I mean, it's dizzying. Yeah, that's impossible. That's actually, hold on. Uh, we can do the math on this. A minute. That's a, we'll round up. We'll be generous. If you do a minute per person, and you work uh, six hours a day. Let's say that they have um, an hour of lunch and like an hour of just purely paperwork and processing, and they only do an eight-hour shift somehow. I, I don't think any of that's true. I'm winging this, but that's still like 360 to 400 people. Yeah, and you're talking about things about hearts and brain and eyes and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's that's not a patient. This that's is a list of heavy names. content, right? Right. This is what bothers me, okay? I think the, some of the best doctors in the world are vets because their patients, what they, they can't tell you what's wrong with it. But then America, uh, people, I shouldn't say Americans, but you know, we talked about your father, my grandfather. Um, they're just not willing to, to talk. They're, yeah. just, they're just like the animal. They just, they just won't say. They'll say enough to get out of there. Well, especially if there's shame involved. Like if you come in and you are an addict of something, anything, it doesn't matter if it's alcohol or, you know, even if you just eat way too much ice cream, you're not going to go in and be like, yeah, I am horrible to my own body. Could you fix me now? Yeah, that's a great point. But for all of you who have never been to Bangladesh and never be able to go to the doctors there for a 48 second visit, we have that same service here in America. It's called Zoom. Right. <laughs> have you been to those clinics? Yes, I have done Zoom clinic meetings at this point. No, no, not Zoom online. It's an actual clinic named Zoom. Oh, really? You have to make you. They're 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 all nice. They're real branded, real good. They're like a, they're like franchises. They're, they're these tiny little um, visits for what do you call it when you just get something just check up care, immediate care, immediate care. Okay. Oh, urgent care. Urgent care. 
Joe, they talk to you fast. They get some nurse practitioner in there and they talk about it. <laughs> it's like speed dating. <laughs> they get in, they get speed you out. Doctoring. Next, 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 next. <laughs> it's the worst healthcare you've ever seen. It's Bangladesh speed. Wow. With my father going in, having 20 minutes to tell the doctor all of the things that are wrong with him, that list that I started this episode with was enormous. And then getting someone to accurately tell him why he's in the middle of dying would have been impossible. I, I can't imagine. And I, I asked him once uh, recently, I was like, how long did the doctor see you for? And he said about 10 minutes. He said he went in, they did 10 minutes, they scanned him, like they sent him through a couple of x-rays and stuff. But he didn't get anything more than like what you and I get, which is a packet of paper. So like he got the same, you and I go in for high blood pressure. We come back with a packet of paper that says eat less salt and do these things. He would go in with everything wrong and everything failing. He'd get the exact same treatment, which is stunning. Yeah. There'd have to be a lot more things, a lot more tests to be done. And right. How do you feel about just being able to just commit people for their own protection? It, it kind of circumstances. Um, you know what I'm saying though, right? Get them, get them out of their own way for a while. Get them a break. Give them a chance. You mean like forcing people to go to like a rehab clinic or something? Mm -hmm. Or even a mental health facility if, if, it, if, it's, if they're literally killing themselves I think slowly people, and painfully. If they're an immediate danger to themselves, I believe it's a good thing. I think that um, just purely going by you know, data and research you can separate somebody from a place and a group of people that encourage them or at least enable them to slowly kill themselves or not so slowly. Um, a break time is actually a really good, not a solution, but a start to a solution to keep somebody from harming themselves. Stops the clock. It stops the clock. It, yeah, exactly. Um, but the problem is I also believe in personal freedoms. And so the idea that you would do this for everybody who is just habiting themselves to death, I don't know if that's, you know, moral. I forgot. I forgot about your ties to the militia. <laughs> <laughs> he's, to, trying to to, get, he's trying to get rid of his social security number too. <laughs> I'm bearing gold in the backyard as we speak. Um, oh my God. I'll put it a different way. Would I have locked up my father for his own good? He did that once. Like he, he did actually get committed once and he did it himself. And I think that was a good choice. Um, but generally speaking, we cannot commit everybody, every, every millennial who is currently drinking themselves to death. We don't have the beds for it, right? We couldn't possibly. We need a quality of life and a um, medical system change, not a emergency um, care change. This is coping with stress. Right. A lot of this is a coping method for younger people between bad health care, student loans, work stresses where they're asked to do 10 times what their salary is, is leading to coping drinking, which is leading to that 30 percent of liver failure, liver, liver hepatitis. Do you have any um, do you have a gym membership? I, yeah, I have multiple. <laughs> multiple. <laughs> I didn't realize until I talked to somebody uh, who worked at their like membership intake, whatever, like the guy that works the counter and like passes out the, the paperwork. Um, a lot of their money comes from people who don't come back to the gym. 
Those are the best customers you can have. Yeah, <laughs> the ones that don't show up. And when you have that uh, 24-hour fitness, LA Fitness thing, it says, yeah, I go to this gym. You can always say that if you're paying your dues. Right. So you went there that day. If I That's why I laughed and I hesitated because, I, yeah, I have five gym memberships. I go to one <laughs> once in a while. Right. There's a reason why more and more businesses are doing that model. Well, some I'm going to step in there. This friend, a friend of mine said this to me, and I thought this was very interesting. There's these new gyms like Planet Fitness and Crunch Fitness that have memberships that are super low, like $10. Most gyms are $30, $40, $50. There's only 10 And what he told me, and there's no research on this, this is what he said, was that's so low that you aren't going to, you know, you're not going to cancel it. Right. If it was 30 you might, but 10 you're like, oh, who cares? Only 10 bucks. Right, you can let that ride. So they can get even higher percentage of those people that ever come. Right. I didn't realize until we had done our episode about air and fatigue how many businesses now run off that model. I'm currently signed up for um, a credit monitoring system. And if I forget to cancel it uh, next year, um, I have to pay them like $300. So I wrote myself a note in a Google Doc to cancel it at a certain time. But I'm like, there's so many people I know who are just going to keep paying that. Um, same thing with uh, most um, rewards programs. And like um, the article we got uh, Aaron Fatigue about in the first place, um, the, the author of that article, she said that like her husband had been paying for um, a type of psych screening and it was like thousands of dollars that he paid multiple times before he actually canceled it. Like he remembered to do it. So what I'm thinking now is you and I have talked about medical billing and we had medical billing as sort of a side mention in a totally different episode. I'm starting to really be convinced that most medical billing runs off of this, runs off this type of air and fatigue. I guarantee that I have paid many, many medical bills that probably would have been covered by my insurance if I would have just had the time and energy to fight it and actually follow up. Exactly. Um, there are legal experts who specialize in contract writing who cannot diffuse what a medical bill explicitly is saying, like how they're, they're describing your, your bills, how to pay them, and what you're paying for. Yeah, it's it's crazy that an entire medical industry has cropped up around basically air and fatigue. Basically, you know, charging people in a way to where they don't know exactly what they're being charged. You would think that profession, the healers would be above that, right? I think they are. I mean, like the profession, yeah, you'd think the whole profession would be above that. But I think it, it really is like the doctors are doing their thing and then behind the scenes, the, the bean counters are the ones figuring out the most efficient way to bill people to bring in the most money. And the most efficient way is doing it in a very tiring, grating way that makes you exhausted to even read their bill. Yeah, and $300 with 300 million people adds up, right? Right. So now we're getting into a period of time where COVID has scared people away from the hospital in general. So combine the air and fatigue you feel reading a medical bill the time that the doctors don't have for you and now you think about how many people don't want to go to a hospital because they're afraid to get covid yeah a lot of small practices we got a report here we're going to link to it in our notes is a lot of small practices have had big declines in the revenue 
um, to the point that they are actually having to go try to privately raise money with like GoFundMe things. So doctor's offices, and again, a time of pandemic. I kind of understand that too, Joe, because if you, right when the pandemic first came out for a while, you were sure the doctor's office had one person down there with COVID, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you at don't all times. There's probably 500 of them at the grocery store, but the, that perfectly clean, doctor's clean, doc, I'm not going there. No way. Guaranteed to get sick. Well, you can go to the hospital and pick up things like C. diff and staph infection, so... I was not going to put it on them to clean their air well enough to keep COVID out. Um, I mean, now we know that our hospitals did relatively well during COVID here in Oregon. Like they, they ran outside tents and they ran air filtration units and things like that. But it still was a huge concern. Well, with all the shortage of doctors and, and this COVID stuff going on, the Texas Medical Association found out that 68% of their doctors in the state had their hours cut because of COVID-19. And 62% of them were being paid less. So they, that is, you would think it'd be the opposite, right? You think they'd be working? Well, I know (laughs) that. Twice as much. Yeah. And making twice as much. Is that how life's supposed to work? Yeah, you'd think during a plague, they would want their doctors on hand and well-paid and ready to, to fight a pandemic. Instead, they had such a drain on people showing up because they didn't want to get anything from the hospital. I mean, do, okay, did you have any friends that did this? Like, do you know anyone who avoided the hospital like me? Uh, lots. Yeah. We have people in the studio raising their hand too right now. Yeah, I was just about to say that. <laughs> so was there, a, um, were they able to apply to the government or anything like that? Was there something... Um, you get grants for starting businesses and stuff. Was there like a a government grant for hospitals that were going under because no one was showing up? Well, these ones I studied, they went to, they did a GoFundMe page <laughs> and they raised <laughs> close to $100,000. Oh my God. For a medical practice. <laughs> During a pandemic. That is so crazy. Did you, okay, this is a little bit of a side tangent. Was it the GoFundMe guy or the Kickstarter guy recently went in the news to say that, like, they're embarrassed that their page is now being used to solve or or to fund disease fighting? They were like, my page was never supposed to be, you know, a replacement for medical insurance. This is, you know, shameful. Do you think that is? Or that's just helping people out? Those are the people that need help. Our our help are the sick people, right? I, I think that there is a couple of cases. Okay, so um, on the application for the PI license, I actually put on there a case that I worked on where somebody contacted me um, for, uh, it was a breast and block removal. Um, so they they had um, basically, a, there's a toxicity level that can be reached with some of the implants. And so they, they were having them removed and there was nothing that would cover it. Um, there are a couple of diseases that like, uh, there are treatments for different cancers that are technically considered not experimental, but like they haven't yet hit the mainstream for practices. Um, what is it? The, the geoblastoma? Is that the one that McCain died from? The The treatment uh, that will kill you in six months. The treatment for it is not a mainstream treatment yet. So there's no coverage for it, even though it works. Is that there, because they just don't 
they they're not going to spend the money unless they know it works enough of, enough percentage of the time. It's Precisely, literally, it's literally just math, not talking about people's lives. That is exactly right. Yeah, um, it's the one that is proven to work more often, but it doesn't have um, enough time usage in a hospital to to warrant the um, what do you call it being covered by insurance. And drug companies aren't going to spend a lot of time and money on it because there's not enough people to get it yet. Right, and there's not any return on that money, so why pay for it? We're we're about to sound if we don't already, we're going to sound like we're wearing tinfoil hats in the studio. But very cynical. <laughs> but yeah, I think the very least thing we can say is GoFundMe and Kickstarter was not intended to be medical coverage for anyone at any point, and the website owners of those websites agree with that. They they don't believe in it either. Um. Now, why are we why are we kind of drifting into cancer territory? Um, well, kind of what I want to talk about is while I was looking into um, my father's death, I had a conversation with one of the people that worked in the medical examiner's office. And they told me that um, when my father passed, it was, quote unquote, um, natural causes. But natural causes... Um, is also a catch-all term. Death of despair is a catch-all term. It doesn't have an actual technical definition. Yeah, it's like natural ingredients. Everything is natural. It's Everything is bad. natural, yeah. <laughs> well, that's kind of what they, they told me. This was not a joke. It was more like I asked and they responded. But it was like, is it natural to die when you have all of these illnesses and drinking and your liver is shutting down and you... You know, and you have all these problems. And they said, basically, yes, they will write natural causes. Even if you're in your 50s or 30s or whatever, my father was in his 50s. They will write natural causes when you have all of these illnesses and it would cost extra money to do a autopsy or to, you know, call the hospital and get them to tell them what the most likely, you know, cause was. So they basically good use of time. To explore deeper, I know it's different with your own family, but as an overall rule? As an overall rule, I think it would be a good use of time to know so that we have good statistical data. It, For my father's case, um, it would have been a waste of resources to do an autopsy. I believe that. I believe it would have been um, unnecessary to find out exactly what killed him except for I would have liked to add that number to the statistics of how he died. If it was liver damage, I would like him to be counted among the you know, 80, 90,000 people who died that month of liver failure. If it was cancer, I would have liked it counted toward that. Like I, I believe in numbers and I believe in having data for these things. Well, I always get furious when someone passes away or let's say someone dies of lung cancer. What's the first thing they say? Oh, did they smoke? And they dismiss it as in they got what they deserved. Yeah. How yes. did they do it to themselves? Exactly. Yeah, he did smoke, but he was a good guy. He was a good friend and he was a good coworker and a good whatever, you know? It's not <laughs> because like you said, we all have our thing, right? It is so funny you mentioned that. The the question of what did they do to put themselves into that danger? Whenever anyone dies, I ask, you know, how to happen. And then when somebody says, oh, they smoked, they drank, they whatever, it makes me feel better because I can sort of check that box of, oh, they did something wrong. Like, you know, if if you don't do something wrong, then it's a fluke. If somebody else does something wrong, then they somehow deserve it. 
Well, when you get to my age, Joe, you're pushing 50, you start. Anytime a celebrity dies that you have followed all your life, <laughs> you start doing the math. Like, right. Okay. <laughs> that means I got 12 good years left. <laughs> right, exactly. Best case scenario. Yeah, you you count down from the you know whichever celebrity lasted the longest. That's your that's your big number. Um, that's your target. And when your father passed, you went into a bit of a spin. You started um, kind of looking at your own life, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, I started looking at health, obviously, because a lot of his health risks matched mine. Like I looked at his health chart, and I was like, "Heck, I'm working on half these things." And the same genetics. Yeah, and the same genetics. Um, I have gotten more tests and I've done more for myself to take care of myself at my age than he has at his age. When when he was, um, you know, 38, uh, he didn't work out. He didn't eat right. He, you know, he, he generally treated himself very poorly. Um, but I can always do more. And that's kind of what our show is about. Our show might as well be called I Can Always Do More For Myself. <laughs> Well, and, and about hope, you yeah, know, the self-awareness thing. If he, if he had a little bit of hope, whether it be a new relationship, a new job, a new hobby, just a new group that he, a new club he joined to, something to feel better, to get better, to get healthy, so he could do more of. Right. I think at the time when he passed, every other week when I talked to him, I was trying to convince him to keep going in to see the doctor. He was fed up and he was tired. He didn't like being processed. He didn't like seeing people and feeling like he was a burden on them. He didn't like having the doctors look like they were tired dealing with his problems. So he stopped going. And every other week it was me talking him back into make your appointments, keep your appointments. I have been at some lows like that. and I, I kind of think I know what your dad was feeling. You just don't like the way you're looked at by people. And they're not looking down on you. It's that pity look. Yeah. It's a horrible feeling. You have people just feeling sorry for you. I, I've i felt that and I've had that. One of my best interactions with another human being was one of my ER visits. My stomach had shut down for unrelated reasons to drinking. I thought it was a drinking issue. I thought, you know, I quit too late and that um, I had done something to my liver or my kidney. And they tested me and I was fine. It was just, you know, the basically ulcers, a, a ulcer. And he came back to me and he, he shut the door. He, he asked my family to leave. And they, he said, I've got good news. Everything's fine, but I'm going to ask to talk to you alone anyway. And then he talked to me about drinking and he, he said, you know, how long have you stopped? And I told him. And then he kind of had a, a very frank discussion with me where he said, look, the rest of your life from here on out, you know, you, you won. The rest is gravy. You got off scot-free. Keep going. Don't, you know, don't regress. Don't, don't fall off the wagon if you can avoid it. Don't hurt yourself if you do. Um, but if you can find that self-improvement. What did that mean to you? How did that first, make you feel that died? It seems very caring and kind to me. It it stunned me. Um, I had been to AA a couple of times. I had had friends talk to me about it. Um, I have generally did not seek much support. I went my own way and I barely talked to the doctors about it because so many of them processed me. Having somebody stop and actually have a frank conversation with me, it was the first time that had happened. And I'll never forget it. Like that's That's not just the best doctor I've seen. That's the best human being I've seen and had a conversation with. And it, it made me... 
he gave me a term that I keep using, which is don't have, you know, don't be great. Don't try to be the best or accomplish something all at once. Just have, you know, try to have more good days than bad. And that way of looking at it changed the way I was looking at it. Because you, you can't be perfect. And we try to, and then we feel guilty when we fail again. But Right. Yeah, whether do, it's do more more good days and bad days. Yeah, if if you're dieting and you um, have a day where you eat a ton of pizza and ice cream, it's fine. Don't kill yourself over it. Just try to have more good days that week than bad. Same thing with drinking. Same thing with anything you're doing. Um, I after talking to the medical examiner, I thought about grief kind of the same way where you don't want to cut off grief. Obviously, you want it to take its course and to mourn and to have that emotion. And I thought about the same way, which is just have more good days than bad. And something I had to really question is when I talked to my family, um, whether or not I told them that my father had had cancer, because that is something that did not come up. Um, Everyone who asked how he passed... I didn't have all the information yet. And so I told them death of despair is basically what it looks like. They wrote natural causes, but really it was, you know, liver, diabetes, high blood pressure, all these things. Mostly it was the death of despair and him not wanting to be processed by hospital. I like that so much better than just putting in the cancer bucket or the heart disease bucket. It took them, it, it took the pressure off the people I was talking to because they... Uh, my family especially felt better when it was the drinking, when they could think, oh, the reason, you know, we had stopped talking to him is the reason he was no longer with us. That that made them feel validated. They didn't feel guilty for not having reached out to him. But the moment I tell them it was an uncontrollable force that every one of us is going to face at some point if we're a human being and we last more than 70 years on this earth... I mean, given a long enough timeline, everybody has cancer at some point. I was going to say, we're not going to get out of this thing alive anyways. Right. That's why it's so weird that we fight to life when (laughs) it's it's such a losing cause. Mortality by all types of cancer has been dropping since the 90s due to better technology and better awareness. Really? if If you look up the mortality of any type of cancer... The, the rate that people are surviving all cancers is crazy. It's, it's getting really, really good. But the problem is, because my father was being processed like cattle through the medical system, he was on state assistance. So, like, we talk processing. He was being fed through like, uh, like he was in a line. Um, they didn't discover the lump on his spine quick enough. And they did not know it was associated with what was happening with the stomach. So the only way I found this out wasn't through his medical records. It was so recent that it happened. It didn't show up on his paperwork. I didn't see it in his medical records. The only way I knew about it is when I called the medical examiner. She let it slip. She was looking at his paperwork and she saw a note that it was, you know, potentially cancer related. And that it was, you know, something that had gone you know, malignant and spread um, because they were tracking the wrong things that, that when he went to the hospital, 
they had so much to look at in such a say, short amount of time. So they many symptoms to catch it. would water down any visit, right? Right. And they're going to go to the most immediate stuff that they can. And Somebody comes in with seven potentially lethal symptoms from different causes, all of them despair-related. What are you going to look at? Well, they're not going to tell him to go through an x-ray unless he obviously has a lump or something. Um, so yeah, that, that is actually my question that I was going to ask you is, would you tell your family if, if they were all saying, oh, it was drinking? We kind of guessed that, you know, that, that relieves us of guilt. That lets us know that the reason we stopped communicating was correct. We were right to know that was going to happen. Do you go back and tell them it was cancer? Oh, after this conversation, I would say it's death by despair. But to me, I'm still having a hard time separating this, what we're talking about, and suicide. Right. I mean, I think they're they got to be related. They were real close, right? Yeah, that that is a good question. Um, the people who are young, like that Kentucky teacher you were talking about, is drinking yourself into a bad liver. Or what was hers? Um, uh, hepatitis of the... Hepatitis liver, yeah. Okay. Um, would that be considered a form of suicide if you drink yourself to that so quickly? Not when you have... When you're older, yes. I think when you're, you're young, you really... You're not consequences thinking or... Right. You, you mend fast. Right. So, you, so you're a danger to yourself, but I don't think you really know. I think as you get older, it becomes more of a choice. But then it gets more ingrained in your day to day and your and your schedule, your routine, and harder to break, right? Right. I think the takeaway I'm having from this is, I think everybody is worn out, and everybody is tired, and everybody is equally being processed at the slow, soul draining, errand fatiguing way. Um, I think the only thing we can really take away, or the one I will take away, is to try to listen when people tell you that something hurts and I guess readjust the face of who's hurting go from what we talked about where a death of despair used to look like you know an old Irishman drinking at a bar slumped over you know don't wake O'Malley he wakes himself up at 2 a.m. every day and (laughs) You know, slumps home uh, carrying a bottle. It's impossible to offend the Irish people, isn't it? It's uh, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> They'll just slap us like Will Smith. Right, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'm expecting that. Um, but but it's, it's hard to adjust the face of somebody who is, you know, the, ingrained in the pop culture mind as a dying drinker. It's hard to adjust that from an older person you know, well over their middle years, somebody who has lost their, their wife and kids to drinking and is now about to drink themselves the rest of the way to the grave. To see that as a mid-30s mother who has a job, that is a jump that my brain just can't make, and I, I think I have to. Well, another jump, too, to your father, that is he has a beautiful children and grandchildren he could have enjoyed, and he's old enough to know better. And it's a shame that he just passed on all those miracles yeah. and decided they didn't want to be part of his life. That's really sad. That's a tragedy to me.
So what killed my father? He was tired of being processed. He was tired of the screen we've let corporations build around our essential services. He was tired of the air and fatigue, constantly filling out applications, like he was signing up for another online newsletter. Doctors treating his medications like a cable subscription. So you want the heart and liver package for 400 a month? or just the blood and stomach basics for 200 a month. But most of all, economic despair killed him. When I found his old resume, it broke my heart. The man held adult jobs, but never cracked 12 bucks an hour. In his old essays, he talked about how disillusioning it was to move his kids into the cheapest neighborhood in Portland, which is still referred to by cops and renters as felony flats, by the way. His writing sometimes felt like a patriotic fever chill, early signs of being shook long before morale had been sanded dull by the system. He wrote that he woke up one day feeling like America didn't care for its people. Germany had pride in their fatherland. Russia is looked after by the motherland. Except America is a landlord, not a parent. And she only cares for you if you're a breadwinner if she can stop taking responsibility by rationalizing that you've made poor choices, she will. Did my father refuse to be processed by the medical system out of stubbornness? Did he catch his cancer too late? Based on his records, it looks like he was mid-discovery. Stand in line here, step in front of the machine, put your hands up, turn around, oops, there's a dark spot. So the scans came back too late. Not that it mattered. My father was on his way out anyway. His pseudonym, when he wrote, was stranded on Earth. And when I arrived to clear out his apartment, there was nothing for me to do. My father, a renter of the American dream, died with his bags packed and ready to go. You've been listening to The Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredu.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything. Thank you.